Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Galatians 4, this is page number 974. If you're using one of the Bibles, see it in front of you. Moved a whole page over now and a whole chapter ahead. <clears throat> We're going to read Galatians 4, verses 8 to 20. Uh, this is kind of an interlude in the middle of this section that we've been working through here for some time now. So uh, we're going to cover it all in one setting, which we'll see why in a few moments. But we're going to read it together first, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus." What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make, may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, as we come now to your word, help us to understand it. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive it. The fact of the matter is, is that we, all of us in this room who claim to be believers in Jesus, we are ministers. And the problem is, is we don't go out and live that way all the time, um, so I pray that through our time together this morning in your word, you will convict us, you will instruct us, guide us, show us then how to go out to live for you, what to expect, and what should motivate us as we do all these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was thinking about a question this week, and the question is, is experience, and I'm talking now about, you know, practical experience and life and work and whatever the case may be. Is experience helpful or harmful? And the answer to that question is it depends on exactly what you're talking about. For example, if I am about to go in for a quadruple bypass surgery, uh, I don't want to uh, go with a guy who's a new graduate from Uncle Bubba's Discount School of Medicine, right? You know, it's not my first choice. You're like, but, but he watched all the episodes of Grey's Anatomy and MASH and even ER. Maybe Doctor Who too. Okay, that's fine, but it's not my first choice. But when he was a kid, he never once lost at the game of operation. 
Excellent. Still not my first choice for, for an operation like that, you know. I want the surgeon who graduated top of his class from Harvard Medical School. He's done 10,000 of these procedures over the past 20 years, right? I want experience. If I'm going to pick somebody, that's the person I want. So in that scenario, experience does help. But sometimes experience doesn't help. In fact, it, it can hurt. I was talking with someone, I don't know, about a year or two ago now, we were talking about this person's job, what they did, and what was going on at work. And they were telling me that they had just made this major uh, change within their company. They had gone over to a whole new like, software system that integrated everything that they did with, uh, across all the departments. But they were having a hard time because some of the people in their company who had been there a long time were having a really difficult time making that transition. These are people who had years of experience. And so for them, it was like, well, we've always done it like this. Well, yeah, I get it. You may have always done it like this, but we're not doing it like that anymore. you got to do it like this. So eventually, one of those guys quit or retired or something, and they hired another guy new to the company, um, but still a lot of experience in the industry. Sure enough, same problem. And so the next time they got to hire someone, they tried an experiment. They hired somebody with no experience or almost no experience in the industry, someone who was just a smart person, hardworking, and they trained them in their way of doing things. And guess what? That worked, okay? It worked really well. So well, in fact, that they said going forward, they weren't going to hire people from within their industry. They're going to try to find people from without so they wouldn't have to deal with the, I've always done it like this mentality anymore. In that scenario, experience was a little bit harmful. And I was thinking about this this week in relation to, the, to what the apostles were going through with the establishment of the early church. You know, if we use Paul as our example, regularly uh, in the New Testament, you see Paul talk about the fact that when he was ministering, he followed a particular pattern. He went to the Jews first, and then he went to the Greeks, or the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And I got thinking about that approach and was kind of wondering why. And, and, you know, why would you go to the Jews first and, and, you know, as opposed to going to everyone at the same time? Well, if I think about that question just pragmatically, not theologically, but purely from a pragmatic practical point of view, I would say that it would make sense to go to the Jews first, logically speaking, uh, with the gospel, because one would assume that they would have so much shared experience with you in spiritual things that it would be easier to present the gospel to them. They would believe in the same God. Uh, they would recognize a lot of the same scriptures. They would understand a lot of the general story of what God has done in this world, talking creation, Abraham, Israel, that kind of stuff. Uh, and therefore, you know, they would know a lot of terminology and concepts that you would want to use as you were sharing the gospel with them. So that would seemingly, practically speaking, make uh, all be positives and make the experience of sharing the gospel with them a little bit easier. Because if you go to the Gentiles, think of all the things you're going to have to explain. Who is God? You know, what, what, what is this, the real God? What is this God you're referring to? Who is Jesus? Why does he matter? What, what is sin? What, what is salvation? Why does he need to die for me? What are the scriptures? You know, we could keep going on and on. It's not hard. It's just a lot more to have to explain to them to sort of get them to the same, same point and up to speed on all of that. And so again, if I just leave out any of the theological reasons, just purely from a pragmatic perspective, I can understand why Paul would go to the Jews first and then the Greeks afterward. However, let me ask you a question now. Based on your knowledge of Scripture, however great or limited that may be, if you know anything about the book of Acts, you know anything about the New Testament letters, as you look at the apostles' ministry and sharing the gospel with Jews and with Gentiles, which of those two groups tended, generally speaking, to be more receptive and open to the gospel message? Was it Jews or Gentiles? What do you think? It was Gentiles. 
The group with less experience, shared experience, tended to be a little more open uh, you know, to, to the gospel message. Even though the apostles had a lot in common from an experience perspective with the Jews, that experience would hurt them, sometimes literally, physically. And just by way of quick illustration, I love that scene in Acts 18 where Paul is preaching in Corinth. He gets to town, so he does what he normally does. He goes and finds a synagogue, and he goes into the synagogue, and he preaches there for a few weeks. And then Luke tells us after a few weeks of this, verse 6, the Jews in that synagogue begin to, to uh, revile him and to uh, oppose him. And so Paul stands up. It sounds like in the middle of their, their meeting, he stands up and he grabs his garments and he shakes them out in front of them and says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. You know, I'd rather deal with the people who don't know anything then, then deal with you people anymore. And then he stays in Corinth for a year and a half preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Experience isn't always helpful. Well, as we turn our thoughts now to Galatians, that's playing out here as well. Like many of the New Testament churches, the Galatian church is a mixed church, meaning it's, it's got a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who have all together placed their faith in Christ. Well, well here in Galatia, as you now know if you've been a part of this study for some time, some unbelieving Jews have come, probably from Jerusalem, and they've come to this church and started telling them, hey, look, that gospel that Paul has taught you about grace and faith and Christ alone, that's not the real gospel. No, the real gospel is you need to believe in Jesus and keep the Old Testament law if you want to be saved. And this, of course, is what Paul has been fighting against and arguing against throughout this letter. And as you think through that scenario, and who would be most tempted in that church to, to latch on to this false gospel and to follow it, you would rightly assume that it's probably the Jewish believers. It's their background, it's what they're comfortable with, what they're experienced in. And so most likely they were the ones uh, uh, more drawn to this false gospel. And so it's no wonder then that Paul has been up to this point almost exclusively focused on that particular group. He has been arguing and speaking to them as a Jewish believer, talking to other Jewish believers about why it makes no biblical, historical, logical, or theological sense to turn to the Old Testament law for salvation. But as he's been doing all of this, there's been another group sitting there, kind of listening in to this thing, and, and that's the Gentile believers within the church. And they have hardly been addressed up to this point. I mean, barely at all, if at all. But even though, because of their lack of, of maybe experience in Jewish life and culture that might make them more prone to follow this false gospel, even though they don't have all of that, it appears that some of them may have been following along with this false gospel as well, going along with their Jewish brothers into this error. And so in, in verses 8 through 20 here, you see Paul just abruptly really stop this argument that he's been building over time and, and, and in a very personal and pastoral kind of way just address this church. He addresses the Gentile believers first in verses 8 through 11 and then all of them together in verses 12 through 20 in a very practical, emotional, and pastoral way. And here's how I've chosen to approach this. Because these verses are so personal, so emotional. You almost have to like feel your way through them, not just simply read and try to understand them. You, you do that too, but you've got to feel the, the pain that Paul is expressing here. Because it's that kind of passage, I don't feel like I need to spend a lot of time explaining every detail about what's going on here because most of it's just going to be obvious. 
It's going to make sense. And so what we're going to do is just quickly walk through, and I mean quickly walk through this entire section, highlighting a thing or two here and there uh, as we go through the text, and then we're going to come back to a few of Paul's comments and see what we can learn about uh, his pastoral and ministry perspective and how that applies to us. So we start here in verse 8. You see that he just abruptly halts his argument about the nature of the Old Testament law and addresses the Gentiles within the Galatian church. As you can see, he's talking to a group of people who he says, formerly, before Christ, they did not know God. They did not know the true God anyway. In fact, he tells us that they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And so this is how we know he's talking to the Gentiles here. These are former idolaters, pagans, that kind of idea. The Jews at least did know who the true God was. They, Because of their experience and their history, because of the law, the scriptures, they had some sense of who God was, and they were not enslaved to idols. So this is clearly a reference to the Gentile portion of the church, and this is who they were. But now they have come to know God. Or, to be more theologically correct and specific, they have come to be known by God. In other words, Paul wants to make sure that we are clear on who the initiator of this relationship is. You know, Romans 3.10 tells us that no one seeks after God. That's either a true or false statement. So if it's a true statement and no one seeks after God, then how is it that anyone ends up in a relationship with God? It's because God first seeks after them, and that is what Paul is acknowledging here. So they used to not know God, they used to be enslaved to false gods, but now God has known them, and so he asks the question, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, if you have your thinking cap on this morning, something in that question might bother you a little bit, um, especially as we compare it to what we looked at last week a little bit. These are Gentiles that he's talking about here, right? I mean, that's what I just told you. And last week, I told you that this weird little phrase here, elementary principles of the world, is a synonym that Paul uses four times in his writings to refer to the Old Testament law, twice here in Galatians, twice in Colossians, and yet... Notice these two words or phrases. He talks about them turning back again to the elementary principles of the world. And he talks about them wanting to be slaves of those elementary principles once more. Doesn't that make it sound like maybe in their past they used to follow the Old Testament law? I think that's a fair question or wondering. Um, but he just said they were Gentiles and they didn't know the true God. They, you know, they were idolaters. So how, how does that you know, what do we do with that? That seems confusing. Well, uh, let me explain it like this. We, we've seen Paul up to this point say some pretty controversial and shocking things throughout this letter, uh, particularly from a Jewish perspective. There's been multiple times, if you were a Jew reading the letter to the Galatians, you're drinking your coffee in the morning as you're reading it, you'd be like, you know, spit it out. Like, what did I just read? What did he just say? Like, it would, it would shock you at a few of his comments. But of everything he has said so far, I promise you, this is the most shockingly offensive thing he said yet, maybe the most shockingly offensive thing he says in the entire letter. In effect, what he is doing is drawing a direct connection between following the Old Testament law now after Christ and idolatry. Remember back here in verse 8, he talked about the fact that they used to be enslaved to these things that were by nature not gods, these false gods, these idols. 
Well, he says now to them, if you turn to the law for salvation, the way these false teachers are wanting you to do, it's like going back to that. It's like being enslaved to that once more, as if there is no difference between following the Old Testament law and worshiping an idol. Even the words he uses here to describe the law, weak and worthless, are words that would more commonly be associated with idolatry than they would with the law. I mean, what's this hunk of wood that you've carved into a, 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 a God going to do for you? You can pray to it all day. Is it going to answer? Is it going to respond? No, it's weak. And where was it in the Old Testament that the prophet called out to Israel, like, you take a piece of wood and you cut it in half, and half you burn in the fire to keep your house warm, and the other half you bow down and worship, right? He's, he's drawing attention to the fact it's worthless. It's wood. These weak and worthless things, normally would be, those words would normally be used to refer to idolatry, idols, but he applies those words here to the law. You say, well, Stacey, are you sure? Are you sure that right here he's talking about the law? Yeah, yeah, you see that in verse 10. He talks about them observing days and months and seasons and years. These are Jewish ideas, Sabbaths and festivals and, and, and all the years that were associated with that. These, these are from the law, the Jewish law. And so he's showing them here, folks, that they will find no more salvation in the Old Testament law than they would find in any idol they can imagine. Nothing. You're no more saved now by following the law. You're never saved by following the law, but you're not going to be saved anymore by that than by bowing down to any god in the Greek pantheon. Folks, that's quite a statement. That is quite a statement for him to make. Again, maybe the most offensive thing he says in the entire letter, and then he ends uh, here with his plea to the Gentile believers. He ends with this emotional cry, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. And, and this is the vocabulary of childbirth, okay? Just note that, the word labor there, vocabulary of childbirth. Note that because we'll come back to it a little bit later on. Next, he turns to the group as a whole. And he pleads with them very, very personally. This is not Paul the theologian speaking now. This is Paul the pastor, Paul the friend speaking to them. He says, brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Rhetorically, he's placing himself on the same level. Theologically, he's reminding them of the fact that none of them have like an upper hand. They're all sinners. All sinners in need of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Next, he tells them that they've done him no wrong. He's not taking the situation personally which I think the false teachers wanted it to be personal. They wanted it to be about Paul. You see that particularly at the beginning of the letter. He's like, no, no, it's not, it's not about me. You're walking away from Christ, not me, Paul says. He then reminds them of their time together. Uh, we don't know exactly what he's referring to here when he talks about this bodily ailment that caused him to go into Galatia. He was in that area anyway, so something happened that sort of diverted his path perhaps or brought him there earlier than he had planned. He goes there at must have been really bad because it talks about being a trial even to the Galatians who had to look at him, talk to him, be with him. But he says they received him gladly as if he was Christ himself. They were such a blessing to him, but something has changed. What has become of your blessedness, Paul asks. The, the only clue... The only clue you get about what went wrong here, this ailment, is this comment in verse 15 that maybe it has something to do with his eyes because he says they loved, you loved me so much that if possible, you would, have, you would have taken out your own eye and given it to me. That's how close we were at that moment. That's how close that relationship was. You love me. 
he's clearly not feeling that kind of love from them anymore. And so he asks, what's happened? Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Is that, has something changed here? And as we come now to the end of this section, you see Paul do two things. First, he points out the true motivations of the false teachers. They're selfish. They must have come in there, just from this verse, they must have come in there and been like, oh, Galatians, God loves you. You are so important. Oh, you're so important. We've come from Jerusalem to make sure you know the true gospel. They're flattering them. They're making much of them, but it's for no good purpose. They're doing it because they want the Galatians to make much of them, the false teachers. They're trying to build up a, a, a following for themselves and sort of puff themselves up. And while it's good to be made much of for a good purpose, this is clearly not that. Second, and coming directly out of that thought, Paul just lays his own feelings on the table. He says, I feel like I'm in labor again. Here we are, back to that childbirth language. I, I feel like I'm right back where I started. Right back in labor again. He talks about feeling the, the anguish of childbirth, the fear, the pain. This is incredibly personal. And the goal for Paul isn't so he can have followers. He's not trying to build a, a club for himself of, yay, Paul, we love Paul. Paul's so great. No, the goal, he says, is that Christ would be formed in them. I'll apply that momentarily. And then he ends by saying that he wishes he could be there with them to talk about this, change his tone, because as it stands, as he looks at this situation from afar, just hearing the reports, he says, I'm perplexed. Literally, I'm at a loss. It's like, ah, ah. that's like the literal translation of that right there. Ah, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think about you anymore. I'm doubting. Maybe he's even doubting the true believers at this point. I, he is at a loss. He is perplexed about them and this situation. Okay, so this is what I mean when I say to you that this section is incredibly personal, emotional, pastoral. It's very different, isn't it, than what we've been looking at up to this point. Up to this point, man, he has been like attacking Old Testament theology and history and not attacking it, but trying to make sure that they understand it, digging into it and, and rightly explaining it to them. And all of a sudden, it's just boom. He's like, he's like he can't wait anymore. He's just got to say all this stuff to him. He sounds like a friend here, like a, like a pastor. So what, do, what exactly are we supposed to do with this? Well, I've used the word pastoral now several times, um, but I don't want you to get the impression then that this section and whatever we might take from it only applies to myself or Jordan or Chris or Caleb or John or Nathan or any other pastor you might run into anywhere else in the world as if this is just something for us, because it's not. The, the fact of the matter is the word pastor just literally means shepherd. Okay, That's all it is, just a shepherd. And while some men are tasked with fulfilling the New Testament office of pastor where they oversee a body of believers and shepherd their souls kind of collectively as a whole. The fact of the matter is, is that all Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus, all Christians are to be shepherding. Okay? You should be shepherding your children, your spouse, your friends, family, any other believers that God puts in your path, you, you, you have a responsibility. We have a saying around here. It's been around for years now. It shows up on the screens behind us every week, but you probably don't even notice it because it's been around so long at this point. It says that we are all, for believers, we are all ministers of Jesus Christ, just cleverly disguised as whatever. And that's not just intended to be some nifty little saying that we put up there because we, we thought it was cool or we liked it. It's intended to reflect a genuine 
philosophy and understanding, a theology of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you claim to be a Christian, then you are, by default, a minister in Jesus, of Jesus. You say, but I, I'm in the Navy. No, no, no. <laughs> no, you're not really in the Navy. You are really a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as someone in the Navy. I don't care who gives you your paycheck each month. That's not who you are. That's what you do, but it's not who you are. If you're a believer, you're really a minister. So if you're a stay-at-home mom, guess what? You're not really a stay-at-home mom. You're really a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home mom. My disguise isn't very clever, okay? So <laughs> everyone knows who I am. Uh, but, you know, you can be a retiree, a teenager, working in an office, working in a factory. It doesn't matter. If you are a believer in Jesus, then you are really a minister of him, cleverly disguised at whatever it is you do. And the point of that saying is to remind us that we are all responsible to be ministering to those around us. Pastors are not hired guns or spiritual service providers so that you don't have to be doing ministry. I have hated that mentality for as long as I've been a pastor. I hate it more now as a pastor, and I will probably always hate it. It's wrong. If that's what you think pastors are supposed to do, you're just plain wrong. If you're a believer, you have to be in ministry. You have to be ministering. And if you're not, then it would make one question whether or not you're truly a believer at all. And yeah, I just said that, okay? I don't know what Jesus thinks of ministerless believers or ministers. That doesn't even make any sense. So therefore, I would argue that this section can apply to any and all of us who are in ministry, and that should be everyone in here who's a follower of Jesus. And so with that said, here are three thoughts on ministry from this section. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. Number one, ministry, real ministry that is, is a lot like childbirth. And I'll explain why I clarified real ministry in a moment. Ministry is a lot like childbirth. Paul used that analogy two times in this section, right? He first said, I, I'm in, I feel like I labored in vain, or I fear that I may have labored in vain over you. And then later he says, I'm in the anguish of childbirth over you again. Now, uh, I've never been in physical labor, thank God. Uh, I've watched it twice. I've heard about it, seen other people who've gone through it kind of thing, heard their stories. And uh, when I think about labor, I don't think about happiness and joy and comfort. I'm not talking about the birth part. I'm talking about like the labor part, like the part that comes before the baby shows up, right? You, you never hear people, we don't call it, they're in comfort, you know? Oh, she's in joy right now. No, it's, it's labor. It's intended to be a, a word that connotates pain, pain and fear and anguish. And it's, it's not easy. Whenever you, you hear a woman tell a story, it's like, oh, I didn't even have any pain. Just baby pop right out. Other women are like, I'm going to kill her, right? Because it's, it's not the normal experience. And and this is how Paul describes his own feelings about ministry. And it feels like labor. It's painful. And it's filled with fear and anguish. And it's really hard. It's really hard work. And it takes a long time. Real ministry is not easy. It's, it's hard. And you, know, you want to know why? Well, this is part of it, maybe not all of it, but at least part of it. It's because you're a sinner and you're trying to work with other sinners. Whenever sinners and sinners come together, it never seems to go very smoothly. I don't know why, but it just never really works out quite well. Real ministry is, is hard. When I say real ministry, let's just be really clear. I'm about to offend a few of you, and that's okay. I'm not talking about serving in the nursery or passing out bulletins as an usher. 
You, you know, some of you, maybe no one in this room, it's all the first service people, okay? Some people, you, you, you ask them to do those things, and it's like you're asking them to become a martyr. Oh, I'd have to change a diaper today. I'm not, I'm not downplaying working in the nursery, being an usher, doing any of those other things. We need that work, right? I don't, I don't at home get kudos every time I take out the trash. Sometimes just stuff has to get done, all right? That's not real ministry in that sense. I would rather change a thousand diapers than have to deal with someone's marriage who's struggling. Give me, give me the diapers any day. I'll take the diapers all day long. I, I'd rather plunge toilets and fold bulletins and pass those out all day long instead of have to walk through the ditch of someone's sin with them as they're fighting and struggling and losing time after time after time. Don't act like you're a martyr just because you can do a couple things out there. Thank you for doing them. But, but when we're talking about the ministry that's like labor, it's that kind of stuff. It's the stuff that gets into the depths of someone's soul and walks through some of the darkest places that they go. And boy, I'm making it sound really negative. It's just sometimes it is. It's not that every day, every moment, every time you interact with them, but sometimes it is exactly like that. So I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but, but if you don't have some hard ministry in your life, people that you're walking through the depths of something with, then, then what are you really doing? What are you really doing? Because real, meaningful ministry can be very hard sometimes. We're talking pain and fear and anguish and long nights, and so I urge you and exhort you, don't shy away from it. And I say that to you as a hypocrite, because I have, right? I've shied away from it. There's times I'm like, I just, I can't deal with this. Like, yeah, and I turn my back on things, but we can't do that. Not if we're going to be really in the trenches of people's lives, helping them become like Jesus. This is what we have been called to as believers, and so prepare accordingly. Ministry is like childbirth. Number two, ministry defections will happen and are not personal. Ministry defections will happen and are not personal. The reality is sometimes you do labor in vain. You know, sometimes in life, even though a woman might go through labor, the child is born dead. Or the child dies shortly after. Or there's a miscarriage. Something happens, and it's all for nothing, so it seems. And the pain of that and the hurt that comes with that can be overwhelming. That's true in the physical realm. It's also true in the spiritual realm. Sometimes you pour into someone, you, you spend hours with them and you're pleading with them and praying for them and speaking truth to them and trying to teach them and help them in every way you can. And despite everything you do, they go the opposite direction of what you've asked. And you watch them make a shipwreck of their life, walk away from the faith sometimes, and you sit back and you look at that and there's only one right response to that, folks, and it's mourning. There are people to this day I can think back on, name them, I can think of them, and I always think of them with sadness because of this very issue. It's going to happen. Jesus, it happened to him. The 12 disciples, one of them became a traitor. You think you're better than him? You think you're not going to experience this? It's going to happen. Uh, you're going to labor in vain sometimes, so what do you do with that? Well, I know this much, you don't take it personally. Paul's like, you didn't mean no wrong. Let's be real clear on this scenario. You're not walking away from me. You're walking away from Christ. You choose to go down this path. You choose to follow this false gospel. You're, this is not me. 
you're walking away from Jesus. And we, may, we need to remember that in those situations, that the people who are doing these things, it's, they're not rejecting you directly. Understand that. Sometimes they feel that way because sometimes they say it. <laughs> but, but in the end, they're rejecting, they're rejecting God. Rejecting Christ. They're rejecting truth. They're rejecting Scripture. And again, I speak to you as a hypocrite here because I couldn't begin to tell you the number of times over the years that I've gone through something like this, whether it was in a big sense or a small sense, and I took it very personally because I'm sinful, okay? I do it. I, you, you go through that, and you're like, you know, what did I do? Why don't you like me? And it's all about you, you, you. No, that's, that's wrong. And I've come to understand that a little more over time, and I've mellowed a hope a little bit. It's not about me. It's not about you either. All we can do is tell people truth. And if they reject that truth, then they're really rejecting Christ. Number three, ministry motivations must be right. This will help with number two, because what's the wrong motivation for ministry? Well, selfishness is the wrong motivation for any ministry. These false teachers are there, and they're trying to get the, the Galatians to make much of them, right? So that's their goal. They, they, want to, they want to build up their own following, and we're like, well, we would never do that. Oh, yeah? I'm pretty sure everyone in this room, if you're a believer and you've done anything at all, you've probably done that. Here's a little test for you. you think back to experiences in your own life. If you've ever done something for someone, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, and the, 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 you know, the people responded well, they, they're all so thankful, thank you for, for what you've done for me, for caring for me, loving me, and, and you walk away from that and you're like, yeah, that was good. Then the second time you go back and do the same thing, and you're like, well, what was the point? I mean, I felt that way. Oh, everybody loves me because they, you know, they're so appreciative of what I've done. Oh, this is great. I'm so happy to serve God then. And the next time it's crickets and it's like, what am I doing? Am I wasting my life? <laughs> Why? You know, it's easy to fall into that trap to think that what you're doing is for your, for about you. It, it becomes about you. You don't even mean for it to, but it, it becomes about you being fulfilled and you feeling appreciated and loved. And it becomes a temptation just to minister for your own glory. But our true motivation should be the same as Paul's here, is for Christ to be formed in them. And that's just another way of saying what he said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, our, our church's ministry purpose verse. That we're supposed to proclaim Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone. Why? Because we want to see them made perfect in Jesus. To be like Christ? That's exactly what he's saying here. I, I'm doing all of this because I want Christ to be formed in them. I want them to be like Jesus. And so we have to minister with that goal. And, and just keeping that in mind helps with so many things because it gives you a longer view of what you're doing. A lot of times, I don't know about you, but I, I'm a quick results guy. Like, <laughs> I want to be able to get in there, do it, and see it right away. Yeah, that doesn't work in ministry a lot of times. You labor for years with people and sometimes not see any fruit. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes we might die and not have seen any fruit. Does that make our work worthless? No. We have to have that long view of recognizing that what we are going for here is not just some quick result, some immediate, obvious change of behavior. We are trying to see Jesus formed in each and every person that God places in front of us. That's the goal, and everything we do then has to be shaped by that. And then, folks, if you're doing those things, you just have to leave the results to God, right? That's all you can do at that point. I'm reminded about this in parenting uh, quite often. I, I use parenting as an example because it's a really good one because parenting is shepherding. You're shepherding your children, right? So whether pastoring, parenting, 
any discipling you've done at all. They're all kind of interrelated. Now think about it with parenting, because I've seen this where you've got parents, godly parents, who sinful, imperfect, but do the best they can. They try to teach their children truth and raise them the right way and show them all these things. And then what happens when the kids grow up? Off the rails in sin, away from God. Conversely, I've seen parents who don't know Jesus at all. <laughs> Unbelievers, atheists, godly children. And it makes you sit back and go, why? How does this work, God? And you know what the answer is? Grace. That if not for the grace of God, no child would ever turn out. No child would ever be saved. No child would ever follow a path of righteousness. It's not giving us like some path we don't have to do anything. No. You're a Christian parent? Teach. Share the gospel. Train your children. Call them to righteousness. Do all of those things, but recognize at the end of the day, it's in God's hands. It's grace. If any of our children turn out, there'll be no patting of our backs. It's grace. Grace and grace and grace. And this is true in the relationships that God places us in where we're ministering, that you're going to work and you're going to call and you're going to plead and you're going to pray. But at the end of the day, guess what? If they turn out, if anything happens, it's grace. It's the grace of God working in that person's life that our ministry would ever have any impact. And so I have questions for you. Not very many, very quick. Who are you ministering to? And some of you are, many of you are probably, and no one needs to know about it. Uh, I don't want to know. I'm not judging anyone. I don't have a clue what you do. But, you know, for some of you, you're, you're, you are ministering to someone right now, and man, you are in the ditch with them. You're in the muck and the mire, and it's hard, and it's painful, and you're discouraged. And I would just encourage you that you are not alone. You say your encouragement to me is that I'm not alone, that it's normal to be discouraged? Pretty much, yeah. Paul was too. Sometimes it's just that way. Sometimes it's just labor. It's pain and fear and anguish. It's just hard. You're not alone. So, so take heart. Keep up. Be faithful. That's all you got to do. Be faithful. God will give the results. If results are going to come, just be faithful. Keep pushing. See what God does. For others of you in here, you're not ministering to anyone. And... and I just would ask you then to consider what, what exactly are you doing with your life? I'm not trying to be harsh with that question. I'm actually trying to be loving with that question. What are you doing? I mean, could you name the people in your life right now that you are actually like in labor because you are trying to see Christ formed in them? Maybe you can. I don't know. Some of you probably couldn't if forced to. You need to address that. And look, this isn't a bigger, complicated thing. The fact of the matter is, God tends to put people right in front of us, right in front of us that he wants us to minister to. So if you've got kids, guess what? There's one or two or ten or whatever you got, okay? There's, there's some. You're married, you've got a spouse, there's another one. Hey, you've got friends, family, people in your community group, the person sitting next to you or behind you, someone outside of Cornerstone. I don't know what God has put in your path, but I promise you it's not as complicated as you might think at first. It's, it's like right there. Like, wherever you look, you're going to run into it. It's right there. So minister. Don't wait for someone else to do it. You do it. Start praying for them. Start talking to them, encouraging them, challenging them, sharing truth with them. Be the minister that God has called you to be, and then leave it up to him for bringing the results that you pray for. Will you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.